Welcome back to Libya Matters. We have just passed the halfway point of season one and it's been quite the ride. Thank you so much for being on this journey with us. We have had so many lovely messages of support and one question we keep being asked is how people can support us. Here's how you can help. If you tell just two people about Libya Matters and make sure they subscribe, that would help us enormously. And if you'd like to get more information on the episodes and to find out what's coming up in the following week, then please subscribe to the Libya Matters newsletter. Who would have thought letters of credit would be interesting? Today, we talk money. We look at the economy in Libya and how the economy's structure has helped to fuel the conflict. We talk about what political economy means, what conflict economies, what shadow economy means, and also coping economy. Yeah, that's a new one. We talk about what's happening and what needs to be done. Listen up and let us know what you think. Welcome back to Libya Matters. I'm on my own this week, but not for much longer. Um, in this week's episode, we discuss the economy. So many ways to describe what is happening in the economic infrastructure in Libya. The situation on the ground tells the story of a struggling economy. With limited liquidity, i.e. actual currency floating about. With a state budget that is about appeasing political and security actors as opposed to rebuilding a state. The 2018 budget shows less than 5% for project development. A weakening Libyan dinar and fraudulent dealings in subsidized goods and in imported goods, which have profited a few players at the cost of the citizen. There have been attempts by the central bank in Libya to address some of these issues, including by introducing a high fee for the official exchange rate, which effectively adjusts the foreign exchange rate in Libya, by replacing the fuel subsidy with a financial subsidy, and by payment of a family allowance paid monthly to each family. Whether any of these are the right measures and what impact they have had is something yet to be determined. To discuss all of this and much more, including how we can begin to think about a different kind of economic reality for Libya, I have with me today Tim Eaton, research fellow at Chatham House's Middle East and North Africa program, where he focuses on political economy of the Libyan conflict. He has published a lot on this and other issues around Libya, but most recently he co-authored the report Conflict Economies in the Middle East and North Africa, which you can get in our newsletter coming out on Friday. Tim, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So in your official title, it says you focus on political economy. Does that mean that's the one you prefer referring to? Or is it one of the many other permutations of the term? It's certainly what I prefer focusing on. Um, it's first good big caveat at the beginning of this podcast is that I'm not an economist. So whilst I'll express views, I'm, no, I'm by no means um, a trained economist. But in a way, the reason that I focused on that is because I just felt that it was a real angle of the conflict and an often analysis which has kind of been missing in the way that people look at um, Libya in particular and also other conflicts more broadly. So I think it's really helpful for us to start by trying to define some of these terms because a very quick survey came up with that, you know, list of different ways we refer to yes. the economy in Libya from political to conflict yeah. to shadow to coping, which... Coping is my personal favorite. It sounds promising. Right. <laughs> it, it sounds does. like it's trying to do something good. Yeah. Um, but maybe we can define what we mean by some of these key terms and, and how they're being used mm. in this conversation. So I think with political economy, I mean, it's very straightforwardly the intersection of politics and economics, and it's how one impacts the other and vice versa. So uh, a political economic analysis of Libya's conflict would look very closely at the allocation of resources, the ability to mobilize resources, but then also the means of you know, applying the force of some of those resources on the ground, be it through armed force, be it through political influence, be it through relationships. And really, I think um, 
if you don't see a political economic analysis of a conflict, then you don't have a particularly holistic view of how it works because you don't really have much success in that conflict without one or the other. Okay, so if we try to break it down a little bit and to outline what we mean by this political economy in a conflict, maybe we start by thinking about how is the economy set up in Libya at the moment? So Libya is an incredibly centralized uh, economy, I would argue hyper-centralized. For the most part, um, you know, something like 96% of Libya's resources are from uh, oil and gas, and they're almost exclusively distributed through a square couple of kilometers in the center of Tripoli, because that's where the sovereign institutions are based. It, it's worth noting that Libya hasn't always been this way. And in fact, at certain points in its history, the National Oil Corporation, obviously a huge part of the Libyan state, was based in Benghazi. This remains a major um, point of contention and a demand from many people to move it. The parliament used to rotate. But really in the Gaddafi era, most of the economic infrastructure was centralized and consolidated in that one um, square kilometer in the center of Tripoli. So um, in terms of the conflict, controlling that square kilometer allows you to control most of the means of distribution of Libya's oil wealth, which is obviously the major prize in terms of economic uh, rewards. And so that square kilometer, if we try to identify what's included in that, so that's the the National Oil the National Corporation, Corporation yeah. the Central Bank of Libya, yep. the Libyan Investment Authority, indeed, yep. the Libyan Foreign Bank. Yep. Are those the key institutions? Have I missed one no, out or you, any you, out? No, I think those are, um, I mean, effectively, the, the main institutions that you need to do is follow the supply chain of oil. Obviously, the National Oil Corporation is in charge of kind of getting it out the ground. It has a monopoly on marketing uh, oil internationally and selling it. And then the, the uh, revenues from the sales of those oil of the oil and gas goes into the Libyan Foreign Bank, which then goes into the um, Central Bank, which is then distributed through the Ministry of Finance to onward to, uh, and then payment orders issued for the central bank, etc. So basically, those institutions have followed that supply chain, and then the onward distribution. And it's worth noting that the distribution of that money is very centralised. So you don't get big budgets going to different parts of the Libyan state or municipalities to then pay people themselves. Those payments have to come from the centre. So unless you can control the centre, you can't necessarily control the payments. Okay, so now this is setting up the scene quite clearly as to how these institutions have been such prized fruits in this conflict. Is the economy fueling the conflict or is the conflict fueling the, the structure or maintaining the structure? Good question. So I think um, for some people who would certainly be critical of looking at the conflict in this way, they... It's sometimes there's a debate in, amongst the academics about greed and grievance. And you know, for those who say that it's all about money, they think that it, you know, this means you're saying that it's just about greed and this is all people are competing for. But it's clearly a lot more complicated than that. And um, as I say, I mean, regardless of what your motive for fighting, if it's ideological, you still need to mobilize resources to be able to fight. Um, and of course, if you believe that it's your interest group that should be in control, then capturing a... Uh, an element of the state or a budget or a key position is a key prize in, in the conflict. It's also worth noting, of course, that people's motivations might change over time. The reason one might join an armed group might be different um, from person to person and might change. At some point, it might be about guaranteeing a salary. At others, it might be 
about a, an ideological cause. But clearly, unless you understand these opportunity structures and the ways in which resources are distributed, you can't really understand how the conflict continues. And in many cases, you can. it would be my analysis that um, the system itself actually only incentivizes competition because basically it's, it's a zero-sum game. Winner takes all. You win, you get the system, you get the position, you get the, um, for example, if you get the uh, government or a ministry, you then get to appoint a lot of people that will allow you patronage opportunities and a degree of control. Um, so if you either get that or you don't get that, and then that is, um, you know, that basically incentivizes people to compete and whether that's for control of state institutions and assets or lucrative smuggling routes in various parts of the country depending on what's the most lucrative form of income that's a critical part of the conflict and in that sense those incentives beget further violence because it's not a system of distribution it's rather a system of contribution uh, of competition so we have these key institutions and they're all in this I keep having to stop myself from saying square mile because that's what I'm used to hearing in London, but the square kilometer um, and the kind of, you know, the, I guess the temptation they provide for some of these, some of the actors in the conflict. But what you describe so well in your research is also the, what we can call as the, the parallel or shadow economy that exists in a conflict. And, you know, you, you mentioned in passing now the idea of smuggling and fuel smuggling. So perhaps we can just try to understand a little bit more. Okay, so we've got these key institutions which people are fighting for because that's your long-term plan, right? That's your longevity. That's what establishes you as a, as a key actor. But then there's the other the other bit, which is how people are funding themselves or how people are, um, I guess, yeah, funding their their strategy to get to those institutions or, or the like. So maybe we can go th- a little bit through those and see how, how those fit into the bigger picture of the economy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so perhaps if... I've obviously written about a war economy or a conflict economy. Um, and what I mean by that is the uh, economic activities that are connected either directly or indirectly to violence. The reason that I wanted to look at the growth of Libya's war economy or conflict economy, I use them somewhat interchangeably, is that um, what you notice after 2011 and the breakdown of central authority and effectively the the um, regime's control over force, is that uh, there's open competition for all kinds of markets, some of them licit, some of them illicit, and increasingly, unless actors have access to coercive force, whether that's to um, blackmail someone or threaten violence indirectly or just hold up something on the road, then you see increasingly that they're not able to thrive very easily in on the ground. And you see a lot of these kind of predatory uh, protection markets and securitized models evolving in Libya over the last um, seven or eight years to the extent that you have a lot of new economic actors that are connecting to existing systems of patronage and very powerful economic incentives. And in many ways, some of those actors um, find their utility in the continuation of insecurity, if you like. So in a way... If everything was resolved and everybody could go home, the protection market's no longer needed in the same way and they would lose their access to resources or their privileged access to resources, which they've been able to build up. So you can see, for example, in central Tripoli, that controlling the security, um, quote unquote, of uh, a major institution or a bank 
allows that group to access its resources in a privileged fashion. So in a bank, that might be when there's a limited amount of money on the inside, well, you determine who can get that money. At an institution, it started off with people saying, well, look, I want to get on the payroll. Because once you're on the Libyan state payroll, you've got a good chance of staying there. Very difficult to get off, yeah. Yes. Um, And then increasingly, you've seen those groups evolve um, into actually infiltrating these uh, organizations. So rather than just being the thug on the outside, actually getting people within the institutions that can access the funds directly. So in those instances, you actually see less violence overtly. But it's still, I would contend, part of a conflict economy because it's coercion which is driving that engagement. So you've got this uh, dynamic on the one side. And then on the other side, um, I often talk about a coping economy. And um, a coping economy, which I just mean like the way through it by which people get by, you know, coping mechanisms. So for some people talking about a black market, a black market's a den of iniquity, always bad. But for many Libyans, uh, as you know, it's, it's like, well that's the only way I can access foreign currency in the current setup. So that's actually really useful to me. Why are you criticizing something that's useful? Um, in other cases, you get some um, engagement in a coping economy, which might be really negative. So for example, if you're somewhere um, which is has very limited economic opportunities, the state's not really providing, but the only thing that's kind of around and lucrative is smuggling, you're not, you might be involved in the smuggling as a means to get by rather than as a means to project violence or to control the country. And it's worth saying that these two economies, a, a war economy and a coping economy, aren't completely divisible. So that's when, um, when we get to the policy bit, often you know, you'll get, say, a World Banker saying, OK, well, how do I remove the war economy from the rest of the economy or the coping economy? And it doesn't work that way, but you have to understand how they're structurally connected. And that's what I've, I spend quite a lot of time trying to get to grips with. It's quite a dangerous merging, no? To start thinking that, maybe I'm being very simplistic about it, or, um, but the idea that, okay, so these are forms that have developed as a way of coping for survival, and therefore we should view them in a, in a I guess, less harsh way. But it's still the same activities at the base of it, which is smuggling or uh, manipulating currency or the like. Or at what point does something stop become become a coping coping system and becomes a war economy? Is it after a certain amount of wealth or is it about power? At what point do you stop engaging in smuggling for coping, but you're engaging in it for profiteering? So I think it could be about both at the same time. So a classic example that's often given here, if you look at Afghanistan, um, the farmers that grow the poppies, that's then turned into heroin and transported into Europe, wherever. Um, they're not growing the poppies to uh, you know, fund a Taliban effort to take over the country, but the Taliban are taxing and controlling the movement of the heroin and profiting massively off of the, the growth of those poppies. So for the farmer, that's a coping mechanism, but for the uh, Taliban, that's part of the conflict economy. And I think you can apply that to Libya as well. For example, you could say in a certain place that um, profiting from smuggling of, of some form through the lease of your property when you have no other form of income could be a coping mechanism. But if there is a, a smuggling network or say a very uh, criminal trafficking network that's using violence to project its force, then that would be closer to the, that would be the war economy side of it. So they interconnect and I think um, where this becomes very important is because often 
there's a tendency if you look at this from a really formal lens you say okay well good guys bad guys formal good informal bad we you know we need a legal framework which says anything that's illegal we cut out and anything that's legal we let go but sometimes that can be quite a blurry concept particularly in in a fragile environment or where there's conflict so you know in some ways i think people might ask well what's the difference between me having a a job within the libyan state for which i've never turned up for and i get paid to someone who's diverting subsidized fuel one is seen as illegal the other is not seen as uh, well the other one is not illegal but both in a way are profiteering from state resources in a similar fashion as you describe some of these coping mechanisms and, and the like Actually, a lot of them existed pre this conflict as well. And, you know, under the Gaddafi era, there were people who were on the payroll who never showed up for a job. And there were people who were benefiting from the black market and currency back then as well. So, which, again, I guess I'm trying to distinguish about when does it become a war economy if the same, again, the same um, activities were taking place in pre-war if you like yeah no i think that's a that's a really good um question and in many ways um when you look at it there isn't really anything that's completely new it's just changing forms of existing activities i mean letter of credit fraud existed prior to the revolution um in a way i think what you're looking at are changes in scale but also the more overt um violence that's used by actors to be able to corner these markets because under the regime the regime maybe didn't have a complete monopoly on force, but could much better control um, its kind of divide and rule strategy. So certain groups or tribal groups would be able to smuggle, the others would be prevented. There was a deal and a kind of a, an understanding on the way that those things worked. And that was a lever that the regime used. But once the regime was gone, then that's become open competition. And so it also, if you think about it just as a market, Um, it's basically the absence of all regulation, right? So you can see that with human smuggling, the numbers obviously went up hugely. But if you translate that into the cost of a crossing of the Mediterranean, it was something like $2,000 in 2012 on average and came down to less than 100 at certain points in 2016. That's because you've got more actors in the market, their supply chains are more integrated. This is a functioning... System. market. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's also because, you know, you've got more coherent groups and greater capture of these markets, which allows, you know, for more integrated systems. So this is also a part of this. So and that might translate if you look at this in the through the eyes of um, a member of the, the Libyan public is that noticing, well, hang on a second. Why is it that I could get subsidized fuel relatively freely in my hometown? a few years ago, but now it's basically impossible. Well, that's because the extent of the war economy is that these markets have been cornered so that the subsidized fuel doesn't even make it to their pump. It's smuggled before it gets there. So you've got these kind of organized crime dynamics which are, um, which are evolving uh, throughout Libya and, and mean significant amounts of capture of, of oft, well, almost exclusively state funds. So we've alluded to a few of the activities and I, I'm, I'm quite keen to explore a little bit more of these elements because we've, we've alluded to the fuel smuggling, to the human smuggling, to the abuse of um, letters of credit, etc., which are all terms that are doing the rounds around Libya. But I, th I think there's no harm in taking a moment to 
outline what each of these look like at the moment and we, you know, where we are with each of those. It, this is a personally exciting moment for me because um, in my, I don't know if you knew this, Tim, Tim, but in my previous life, I used to be a finance lawyer in, in the city of London. And I never thought that the work I was doing on letters of credit would become so interesting. I'd really like to just go through those in a bit more detail so that we can then start thinking of, okay, how do we address those components if we're trying to kind of salvage something out of, out of this mess? Right. Yeah. And actually, I'll probably have some questions for you. But um, I, I seem to talk a lot about supply chains these days and find that an incredibly exciting topic. I think if you'd have told me that 10 years ago, that would have been probably not a particularly welcome surprise. But the reason that that's really interesting to me is because when you look at these different types of activity and you try and follow it from one end to the other, you kind of see what you need to get it done, what kind of access you need, where you need to be, where the choke points are. And so that um, often tells you quite a lot about who's involved and how they're involved. And, you know, sometimes I think the discussion on Libya is all about the armed groups. The armed groups do this, the armed groups do that. But in many ways, I think as you alluded these activities existed before, and probably many of the people that are profiting in the same way haven't changed. It's just that they have new partners. And so that's worth, worth noting. Well, maybe we'll, we'll start with this idea of how the kind of the import fraud works, because you, you mentioned that in, in one of your papers, and, and that's where the letters of credit, but also the, I think that's where the in, interesting intersection between what's happening on the ground and the central bank is. And I think that's quite an interesting, an interesting triangle that was worth looking at. Letter of credit fraud, there are a number of different ways of doing it, but it's worth noting that um, if you looked at the difference between the exchange rate from the, on, the, on the formal market between the Libyan dinar and the US dollar, it would have been very, very similar to that of the Libyan dinar to the US dollar on the black market. There wasn't a, really a big um, shift. But increasingly, um, after 2014, you see... A confluence of factors. You have an austerity drive from the central bank. You've got a big um, oil blockade in the east by Jadran. Uh, and then you have the implementation of a, a new ID system and cut back. And the cumulative impact uh, of these, you see a real... Um, uh, you see a real gap emerge between the formal and the and the black market rates. So put simply, that means if you can buy at the uh, the formal rate... Uh, which is usually about 1.3, 1.4-ish, uh, and sell at the black market rate, which was often by 2016, 17, 5, 6, and up to 10 at one stage, then you could make a huge profit. So um, letter of credit uh, fraud in, in some is effectively buying, getting dollars at the official rate to import goods from overseas for, a, for an agreed value that you can then sell in Libya. But of course, if you could buy, say, on paper, a million dollars worth of, of um, water, tuna. yeah, <laughs> tuna, that's a good example, actually. Um, and um, you set up a shell company in, say, Turkey for your water. And then um, actually, what you did is you just forged the paperwork. And rather than sending in a million dollars, just send in maybe $200,000, you can then You've got $800,000 that are in Turkey that you've got out. You bring the um, $200,000 in, and actually, if you wish to sell all of that $200,000, because there might be a 400 or 500% markup, you can still make your principal money back. Uh, and then you've 
got the same money, you've got your $800,000 overseas, which you can then bring back in and sell on the black market yourself if you like. You can just keep it offshore. Um, you can do all kinds of things. And this is something which has happened over and over again. And in many cases, no goods have even been imported. So you see that the impact of this for, for people is just that they're forced to pay black market rates on the street because in many cases, traders weren't able to get a letter of credit. They didn't fulfill criteria and they had to use black market rates. Or people are just profiteering and making such a huge profit that they're effectively being paid in the, in the uh, official rate and, and expending in the unofficial rate. So they're subsidizing this massive offshoring and diversion of, of funds. And that's allowing people who can corner that market to make millions and millions of, of dinars and just keep recycling it and using it to make more money. And I remember it sort of in, in the peak of, of the use of letters of credit, there was a lot of rumors going around or, or stories going around that actually it was a, it was a way to fund the, to be able to fund the militias in Tripoli off, off the books. And it was a, a way that, you know, some banks in, in, in the capital could support those militias without having to pay, say, salaries or the like to them uh yes and actually it's fascinating if you look at the reduction in spending of the ministry of interior and the ministry of defense through which most of the armed groups are registered and in theory paid um from 2013 it, it really drops off a cliff that spending again connected to the um the oil blockade the introduction of the id system um, and austerity but at the same time, if you look at the amount of money that's likely to have been diverted through um, fraud, such as letter of credit, exactly the same time, it goes through the roof. So that raises big questions. You know, is this that the armed groups have just suddenly worked this out? And, you know, they certainly did over time. And in many cases, you have business people who understand how this works, tapping the armed group on the shoulder saying, you know, hey, you know, let me let me tell you how this works and let's do business. But in other cases, is it also political decision makers turning a blind eye saying, look, we know we can't give you the money we were giving you before on the books, but we're going to look the other way if you do this. And that um, seems, you know, it, there's a quite a lot of smoke to this, but, you know, there's not a lot of... Um, yeah, to find the fire. Exactly. But even saying that, if you look at the official amounts being paid um, under the budget it's still a disproportionately high number that goes to effectively salaries in the Libyan budget. So what is it? A 2000, in 2018? Something like 58%. Like 58%. Yeah, 57% of the budget went to salaries. Yeah. Which can't be, I mean, I don't know what it is for other states, but that is Well, it's worth high. distinguishing here between also salaries and then the money that, say, an armed group will use for um, ammunition, guns, uh, equipment. That's a key uh, you know, cost center, if you like, for them. And those are the things that they struggle more to, to mobilize. So it's likely that some of this money, well, a large degree of this money just enrich leaders in many cases, but also it would be used to cover running costs. For the most part, those groups would still have their guys on the, on the salary roll. Um, but there's a, you know, the, the big place where this stuff was hidden was in chapter two expenditure, um, which which is, which is um, contracts, basically. So whilst chapter one um, is salaries, uh, which, you, as you just pointed out, is something like 57% of the agreed budget in 2018. By the way, that was 14% in 2010. 
Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and, that, and even then it was considered um, yeah. problematic how many people were on the payroll. Yes. Um, but now if you look at certain groups like Cuatrada, you know, the um, CARA's uh, special deterrence forces, those groups, I believe, um, are, are contracted and have negotiated their own rates of payment. So you might find that some of their fighters aren't actually within salary one, uh, chapter, chapter one. one yeah. And also this is where you get some quite magnificently priced catering contracts for millions of millions of dollars to provide certain institutions, which may uh, have catering companies related to somebody who's important or that carries a gun. Wow. Okay. Um, sorry, I actually forgot my next question because I've been so thrown, um, so thrown by these numbers. But I think I always, whenever I look at these numbers, I and and it's still the central bank still maintains its quote unquote neutrality in this conflict, which which also means that they pay salaries for fighters on all sides. State funded civil war, subsidized civil war, right? <laughs> yeah, um, which is. Is, is an interesting way to, to purport neutrality, I find. But anyway, maybe we... Well, I think it's worth um, digging into that, though, because obviously there was a debate about whether the CBL should stop paying uh, members of the Libyan Arab Armed Forces of Haftar uh, as a result of the current offensive on Tripoli. And uh, I think it's not known to that many people, actually, that the central bank pays the salaries of soldiers registered prior to 2014's governance split with who are currently fighting with um, Haftar's forces. Um, but the trouble is, if they were to cut that or if they were to pursue economic policies which would, be, which would have a really negative impact on, say, the lives of people in the East, is that likely to exacerbate conflict? Um, that's, is that likely to precipitate a fissure in the economy greater um, you know, you know, exacerbate the governance split because you already have almost the emergence of two economic systems in, in Libya. So that, I think, is quite a, a delicate thing for the CBL to balance. And the CBL, if it is to be neutral, has to be seen to be... Um, G- giving everyone... Giving every- but at the same time, of course, it, it is aligned with the UN-backed government of national accord, which is being attacked right now by, you know, um, armed forces connected to some elements of the state which are official and other elements of the state which are parallel. So, I mean, I think it's basically impossible for the CBL to remain entirely neutral, but I do think that actually on on balance, not pushing policies which would cut off um, elements in the East and exacerbate grievances is probably the right way to go. Does the Libyan National Army of today require as much funding from the central bank as it did in 2014 when this was the issue? I'm glad you asked that question. It's a fascinating thing. So I've been working um, with um, with a few researchers on this and, and these are mostly their, their findings. But what you see uh, here is kind of the emergence of a hybrid governance model uh, through the uh, Libyan Arab Armed Forces. I use LNA because that's what we all use. Um, but you see that actually the creation of the CBL East, you know, which is you know, a branch of the CBL, but not recognized by CBL Tripoli and headed by Ali al-Hibri, who's on the... the deputy. Exactly. Um, you know, they've mobilized over 30 billion dinars in unsecured bonds, a third of which has gone to um, Haftar's LNA. Um, but the way that they've done that has been through a kind of um, quasi-legal approach of using the House of Representatives, uh, using the interim government, which is a 
a parallel institution in the international community's eyes to create a defense committee which can then levy money. Um, sometimes that's taxes from um, Brega, which is the, the um, state-owned company for, uh, for fuel and, and gas marketing, and um, through the telecoms agency to actually get math, quite a lot of money, but it's doing, so it's got the money that the, are paid through salaries f for the guys that were registered prior to 2014. And then it's got this defense committee's ability to leverage billions of, of, of dinars. And then on top of that, the House of Representatives in slightly fishy circumstances passed legislation on military investment, which has allowed the LNA to create its own uh, military authority for investment and public works, and this is kind of uh, kind of very Egyptian esque model, where they're engaging all kinds of private economic activity, from uh, the export of scrap metal to actually charging fees for providing uh, visas to Egyptian migrant workers to operate in the East. All complete. That's completely outside the uh, legal uh, framework in the East. So you've got quite a range of um, revenue model uh, income streams for the LNA. So when sometimes people think, oh, it's the Emiratis, it's the Egyptians, it's external backers that are paying for everything. Actually, I think the major source of liquidity for the LNA system is the Easts. Um, okay, well, trying to unpack a little bit how this, this mess that we've just, well, that you've just described um, attempts to address that, to adjust that. So we've seen quite a few and uh, quite a bit of activity recently, um, predominantly by the Libyan Audit, Libyan Audit Bureau, uh, which has been commended by many for the work it, it did um, last year in, in setting out some of its findings. Before I go into that, because it's, it's one of the sort of Libyan institutions that doesn't get much um, spotlight on it. How is, it, how is its perception in your eyes? Is it credible? Is it independent, uh, sufficiently independent to, for, for us to take its findings with confidence? Because, I, because the findings are fascinating, but before we look at the findings, I think it'd be good to just take a moment to look at it as an institution. Right, right. I think that's a really good question. Um, as a researcher that looks at these issues, its reports are invaluable um, to me. It's also worth noting that the fragmentation that we see in many institutions between East and West and in personal feuds and in parallel structures is reflected in Libya's anti-corruption um, infrastructure. So I think there are at least six agencies that have an anti-corruption mandate within Libya and they generally don't talk to each other. Um, the Audit Bureau has done, uh, the Western-based Audit, Audit Bureau has done some very extensive reporting on a lot of the issues that I've referenced. Um, that has got it into some hot water, particularly with the central bank, um, which has contended that the, the uh, figures and information that the Audit Bureau printed on letters of credit um, violated, uh, I believe their justification was that it um, it it violated rules and procedures and misrepresented some of their data. But it's pretty compelling. I mean, certainly when you look at the numbers and you can also see that things that the Audit Bureau has done on topics that sound very unsexy, but actually when you start looking at it between differences in what local refineries produce and the value of what they sell, I mean, that's clearly going to equate a lot of money if that's going missing. This kind of work from the Audit Bureau in its reports, which are often six or 700 pages long every year, are an invaluable source of information on 
on these issues, along with the UN panel of experts reports, they're really the only two um, sources of um, information on these issues which have credibility and have a relatively robust methodology. So um, there are certainly things I think that the Audit Bureau may have not got 100% right, but it's incredibly valuable. And I think actually its work should get much greater support from the international community. I mean, for me, what gives it the most credibility is the fact that is the reaction of the central bank blocking access to the to its databases, etc. makes me feel that there's something there that they're finding that perhaps some at the central bank don't want to be found. They list they give a hundred page rebuke, actually, um, in 2017, I think, of the Audit Bureau report. Um, but I just, uh, you know, as one as one plea from a researcher with terrible Arabic who has to wade through all of these reports, if somebody could write an executive summary at some point, that would be great. Because I think the 2016 Audit Bureau report, which was the, which had all kinds of crazy, incriminating um, information, was like 600 pages and it was all pictures, so you couldn't search the text. <laughs> it was a nightmare. It took me forever, but um, it's it's a really invaluable source. And actually, I mean. I keep telling the internationals, if I had a few grand to fund something in, in Libya, I would translate the Audit Bureau's reports because the fact that they remain in Arabic actually a lot of the time means that people are re- only reading um, the snippets that someone like me might glean when actually this is something which should be required reading for their ministries of, of foreign affairs, I think. It shows how a lot of things work and where a lot of the bodies are buried. Yeah, I know. It's, um, I've, I have not tried to crack that one open. I have relied <laughs> on other people's summaries of it, but perhaps it's, um, it'll be my vacation, my vacation reading. The other interesting um, findings I saw or the sort of reporting I saw was from the Attorney General's office. I think the head of investigations came out with um, his numbers for what, what the, the smuggling, fuel smuggling looks like in terms of numbers in Libya. Is that to be taken with a bit more of a pinch of salt because it doesn't seem to be as substantiated as some of the stuff that the Audit Bureau is doing? Right. Um, so I think also the reason that it's slightly, you know, quite a broad estimate, he, he estimates something like a third of some major fuels are diverted is because they don't really know. Um, because actually, when you look at this system, if you like the the easy narrative, as with often many things in Libya, is that everything kind of works and then these nasty armed groups came along and captured everything and then everything went really bad. And if you get rid of the armed groups, then we can get back to stability and we can get things to function. But in reality, it's much more complicated than that. So when I've been doing some work with um, with a fantastic Libyan researcher uh, who was looking, we've been trying to look at how the supply chain of the fuel and how it moves and the reporting. And you realize that actually, um, in a lot of cases, there's a massive under-reporting of probably what's coming out of the refineries. And there's also major debts which are being accrued by state institutions and state-affiliated private enterprises. And it would take a long time to walk you through it but the sum of it is that in many cases you've got people that are basically taking Libyan subsidized fuel and then just not paying for it so the narrative is that um, the reason that people smuggle fuel is because they can make more money on the black market and that's certainly true but if you've got these big institutions and structural faults in all of these organizations which means that they're taking this fuel and not paying for it well, they're effectively stealing it. So that... Well, actually stealing it. Actually stealing it. And what you see is that 
this you've got this massive debt cascading through the Libyan system, starting from um, many of the petrol stations and you're probably well aware and your listeners would be well aware about the talk about ghost petrol stations that exist only on paper. To give you a flavor of that, when an NOC team went to look at 105 petrol stations registered since 2011, it found that 88 of them were either not supplied or didn't exist. So if you've got that petrol station, that means that you can request fuel. So that's fuel that's got all of the right documentation, but isn't going to a subsidized pump. Then when they're supposed to pay for it, a lot of the money doesn't go to the fuel distribution companies. The fuel distribution companies have all kinds of problems themselves and don't seem to be paying um, Brega, the Brega Fuel and Marketing Company, which in turn isn't paying the NOC, which in turn isn't paying the state, which then creates a massive black hole of billions and billions of dinars. But because the governance structure of all of this is so weak, there's there's no concept of profit and loss so nobody's really being held accountable for these billions of dinars that are going missing. And you just see the problem increasing. So whilst we're all looking for where it's coming out the bottom, we're not looking about the money that should be coming back through the top. And so that's, I think, a good window into Libya's political economy that illustrates you know, how, just how complicated some of this stuff is and how sweeping many of the reforms would need to be to fix it, rather than just locking up a bad guy here and there. Although locking up bad guys is yeah, not, no, a, not a bad, not not a bad, bad thing. thing. Um, well, I feel like we've, we've been fairly critical of the central bank so far, but they've, they did try to bring in some reforms recently, which we've, again, sort of alluded to in my opening statement, but also throughout this. Some of them were to deal with this fuel smuggling. And if I understand correctly, what they decided to do there is to remove the fuel subsidy and to provide it as a financial subsidy so something that you go and get cash to then buy your fuels that how it works well this is the plan so um the international financial institutions like the world bank and the imf have been quite critical of libya's really bloated subsidy um regime so out of you know the five chapters of spending subsidies i think was it something like 13 billion or something last year Subsidies, uh, 6.6 billion? 6.6, nowhere near. Okay, 6.6, but still still a considerable proportion of the the state budget. And so the idea is that they'll be phased out. Um, But it's a political decision which will come with ramifications, upset a number of people, certainly who profit, but also certain communities um, who are engaged in, in fuel smuggling. So whilst it's been mooted by both the central bank and the GNA, nobody's implementing it yet. And it looks like both are kind of looking at the other to do it. I think the central bank's argument is that this is for the government of national accord to implement. The government of national accord is kind of basically saying right now, well, we're in the middle of a war, we'll get back to our economic reform plans once the war's over. But let's say that happens. How would that actually work if you couple it with the other problem that we're facing of the liquidity of liquidity mm. crisis, because if you're now saying, okay, you'll get your subsidy financially, I, I'm assuming that means by going somewhere and picking it up, right, or getting money. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and we already know, right, that um, if you're in many parts of the country, particularly in the south, being able to get money that you've technically been paid by the state is is a problem. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, we also know that the Libyan state has big payments for safe cash allowances um, in dollars. And then, of course, um, 
in, in wages, which often is more of a welfare payment for some than a, an actual wage payment. So in a way, I think this, that you, you've put your finger on one of the big uh, areas for reform, which is, well, you've already got this massive redistribution of Libya's oil wealth. It's just done in a really ineffective way. So this is, I think, one of the, the exam questions. You know, how, how do you make that more effective? Clearly, if you can guarantee that you can get the money to people in different ways, maybe in the form of um, you know, a, a, a broader welfare payment, then you could start to remove some of these subsidies and it wouldn't impact people. But if, or the, sorry, the big if here is whether you have, or as Libya has the infrastructure to actually make that work. And at present, that seems quite questionable. Because we've seen it with, with this cash allowance, the dollar cash allowance you, you mentioned, which I can't remember how much it's at at the moment. Is it it's around $400, $500 a person? But people are having trouble accessing that because the, the, the sort of, well, the commercial banks are meant to process this through having, having got the money through, etc. So it's, it's a systematic problem. But I don't know if you've thought about this, but I have a, I have a problem with this system generally because the amounts are paid to the head of the family, right. i.e. the male in the family. Yeah. Um, from a human rights perspective, I have an issue there with the fact that you know, you as a female member of the family, etc., will be reliant on your father or husband to go and collect this money and on their goodwill to transfer it to you. So I think, I know this is not your area, but I think it's very, it is very, it's just so flawed in so, in so many ways because, you know, some of the most vulnerable people are unlikely to access that money anyway right. because of the way it's distributed. Um, whether they're vulnerable because of where they live or where they are in the family structure, it is, is, it's quite flawed as a system. Yeah, I think, I think that really, really good points. Um, another point, of course, is that in, in many places, though, um, the idea behind these fuel subsidies was that, you know, it was kind of a, a, a way of providing welfare. And actually, in many big areas of the country, people aren't able to access these subsidized goods anyway. So it is worth noting that perhaps for those people, removing the subsidy won't have the impact that... Um, that it that it will it might end up having a worse impact because you might have a situation where you're not benefiting from that subsidy at the pump and you're not accessing the money at home and so you're you're yeah. paying the the sort of you know higher price at the pump but you're not getting compensated yeah. for it which well, I mean, yeah no i think i think that's that that that's completely fair um and you know I, personally i think that one of the major focal points of economic reform in Libya should be this welfare distribution and I'm sure we'll get into it shortly but when you start looking at how this connects to the conflict and people trying to access pots of money well in my view anything that you can do to better redistribute the wealth on a per capita basis something that's demonstrably not um, political um, is, 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 is something that's going to help rather than um, exacerbate the conflict because um, it's harder, I think, for many of the political actors uh, to then say that this is partisan or unfair, disadvantages the East over the West, etc. But certainly the points that you raise about access to that, to those funds, if people don't have bank accounts, if it's only the head, male head of the household that has those bank accounts, those are also issues that, frankly, I haven't really heard um, aired out in m m most of these debates, which tend to be quite technical economic debates and actually that's part of my interest in these things is that often 
people seem to present the economic as if it's apolitical. And okay, well, the politics are really hard, so let's talk about the economics. But when you look at it, you realize very quickly that this is inherently political because it's a key driver of the conflict. It's not just um, a symptom of it. Yeah, and I guess the other element I wanted to just touch on is um, before before the April conflict started, the, the UN support mission in Libya had announced that it was looking at a, a more comprehensive economic reform project and they were, you know, they wanted to, I guess, more thoroughly embed that into any political settlement. I know what the answer to this question will be is like, do you think that's a good idea? Yes. But I think one of the issues I have is that the, in, the economic infrastructure, as we have outlined it so far, is actually des- designed for authorita- authoritarianism. It is not designed for democracy because it's all centralized. It's all in one square kilometer, as you say. And I don't, under- I don't see how the current infrastructure could ever support a transition to the kind of Libya that we are purporting to aspire to, right? Because it's, it's fundamentally designed to be controlled by three or four people. Uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And actually, uh, this is why uh, we were talking just before this podcast started. I think, you know, economic reform and when it happens uh, is really important. And when you look at studies of other economies and one of the big questions that I was asked by uh, some of the internationals about the war economy stuff is, you know, how do I turn a war economy into a peace economy? And, you know, what examples can we draw? What initiatives can we look at which have been successful in this regard and the last uh, or the, the podcast with Jeff talked about political settlements and elite bargains you know where effectively the principal actors cut a deal to carve things up and if you look at a place like Lebanon you see that's exactly what happened and because it was quite an inclusive elite bargain that brought together the varying parties it's somewhat succeeded But the idea that you can then, after this so-called liberal peace, create a moment of reform is flawed. Lebanon's never been able to reform its war economies just entrenched in its post-settlement reality. And it still has a war economy in that sense. So if you apply this to the Libyan context, if, for example, there's a new presidency council with with three people that are going to split things up, if there's a deal between warring factions about who gets what, then... That deal would be based upon patronage lines. It would be based upon rentierism, control, assets, etc. There is literally zero incentive for those actors to then say afterwards, okay, well, now we've got what we agreed on. Let's find a more equitable way of sharing this out. That's not how it works. It's not incentivized. It's not incentivized. Um, So the difficult uh, inference that you've got to draw from that is that elements of the economy and a and economic reform have to be entrenched in a political settlement. And this is where you obviously need the uh, conversation about who's deciding that, who's involved, what they're representing, and how you address that. And I think actually, on the economic front, this is something that Unsmill have been quite open to discussing, and, and they understand the special representative has talked quite a lot about a political economy of predation, you know, and um, understands, I think, the zero-sum nature of the setup of the state and that that's not conducive to a sustainable peace but at the same time just to call a spade a spade you know the principal armed actors aren't sitting around talking about the introduction of universal basic income or decentralization of power these are not topics on the slate but they have to be for this stuff to really work so i think that there's got to be some means of 
bringing in some of these debates and some of these processes into a political settlement process. Um, but it's very, very hard. So trying to look ahead, one of the so one of the issues I have, as I'm sure you you've been with me in enough rooms to know what I'm about to say, Tim, is in all these attempts to address the problems, we still never talk about legal routes to addressing them um, and looking at accountability for people who breach who breach the law or who smuggle or who and we've I mean the with credit to the panel of the UN panel of experts they very they do their work on that and in the Libyan case the audit bureau has done its work on identifying where the problems lie but that never manifests itself into a a genuine pursuit of of sort of accountability for the for those and we, and, and I I'm starting to understand the reality of why that's difficult. One thing that struck me in your report, which um, I'd like to pick at, is, is, and this I promise this will be the only quote I throw at you, it's, you say that le- legality is a relative concept in conflict economies. And I know you hinted at that earlier when you were talking about sort of the coping versus the war economy and, and you know, if the only access you have to foreign currency is the black market, then that's illegal. But if you are on the state payroll, that's legal. And, but they're both problematic abuses of the system. And so that I'm assuming that's what you mean by the blurring of legality and it's not sort of a, a clear-cut concept in, in a conflict economy. Uh, also just that, uh, for example, it's contested in Libya who's able to write law and who's, you know, who's a, a legal entity. So in that, in that case, depending on where you are in, within the country and where you stand, you might, certain things might be law. In, in other places, they might not be. Some things might be part of the state infrastructure. In other places, there are parallel structures. So this is one of the challenges, I think, in, in Libya. Obviously, I, I'm no, no lawyer, but almost everybody's mandate seems to be easily challengeable on a fairly... But the, be- but the beauty of everyone being paid by the central bank is that that brings them all within the state structure. So they're all accountable. So in my mind, anyone who's paid by the state therefore becomes part of the state and whatever they do they're accountable for as if they're a state actor right so in my mind that from a purely practical legal perspective I can pursue any of those people for um, their part but I think I guess for, for me I don't see the delineations as clearly as that because for me someone who's on a payroll when they shouldn't be is not legal actually even if the mechanism they're using or accessing is legal but the fact that they're on there is for a fraudulent reason or because of um, misrepresentation of their status or the, or the like. And that was the case in the Gaddafi era when you had teachers who were six years old mm-hmm. on the payroll or who were deceased on the payroll um, to now having people who have never fought on the, on the fighting. So for me, that, there's a, a huge element even with those accessing funds legally, quote unquote, that actually the way they got it is fraudulent. And so there is quite a lot of scope there. And what, what, what I don't see is a genuine appetite to use mechanisms to pursue those actors. And we've seen some sanction, people sanctioned, but you very beautifully described how much of this money ends up offshore. Um, so how, you know, as someone who works on policy in, in, sort of in the UK and, and more widely in, in European Western countries, how can we pursue money that's sitting offshore as a result of, of you know, these fraudulent activities? Because there must be a way that that can be... Yeah, well, I, I think that this is certainly something that the internationals can do more on. And I think what I'm, I'm not advocating is that there isn't any means to, you know, pursue enforcement options. Um, what I'm saying is that with the structural incentives that are around, it's likely if you take one person out, there'll be another person who will seek to benefit from the same opportunities. But I think there's a, there's a limit on how many people you can take out. Well, 
Is there? Because I think it's the essence of the system. And in many ways, the, this diversion and, and the way and these streams of patronage are kind of seen as the way it works. So in that sense, some people say that Libya's institutions uh, are useless and don't do anything. Another way of looking at it, a couple of Libyan um, researchers argue, is that actually the, they system, do everything. <laughs> the system does exactly what it's supposed to do, which is nothing and, and pay people. So, you know, if you're looking at the LIA and the diversion of Libyan state funds through patronage networks, some still connected to the former regime, that was designed to work in, in that way. So, uh, you know, there are... If there, there may not be a limit to the people that, number of people that you could arrest, but the number of people that you could arrest may well include most of the, uh, of the key people in that organization. I mean, if you look at the court cases that are ongoing in that, in that regard. But I think I've, I've, I've strayed from your question, but what I wanted to say is that um, when the internationals do look at these enforcement approaches, they tend to look at them um, inconsistently. So... They put certain people under individual sanctions. And what are the criteria of those? Those criteria aren't applied evenly. Um, and sometimes those criteria are applied, someone's sanctioned, and then nothing happens. I mean, you've got the head of a, of a major oil refinery in Zawiya on the UN sanctions list continuing to be the head of security for the refinery. You've got a senior commander in the Libyan Coast Guard that's under UN sanctions that continues to be part of an agency that's paid by the EU. So, you know, there needs to be a path to in uh, criteria that needs to be applied um, appropriately and, um, and consistently. But you are right, certainly when you look at the offshore elements of these letters of credits and the movements of certain armed commanders, including through Europe, that the West could do much more to target these individuals, particularly those who are making millions, and we are talking millions upon millions and millions of dollars that are being offshored, there isn't much attempt to really target those assets. And I think that's certainly something that could be done. And when you look at, say, letters of credit, these are shipments that are coming through the international system. So there has to be some accountability there as well. But it's not something really that we've seen a lot of you know, interest in the international community approaching and also in a context where international actors are blatantly violating the UN arms embargo, that's an even more, in, in most people's eyes, egregious violation of, um, of international laws than the accumulation of some of this wealth. So there doesn't seem to be a lot of appetite to really talk about how the international community could help diffuse some of the more pernicious elements of, of Libya's political economy and these profiteers that are emerging. So if we say, okay, the problem is with the system and there will always be people there to take advantage of the system, how do we, you know, to try and end on, a, on an up, how do we begin to change the system? And let's think piecemeal, we don't have, you know... Yeah, and I think piecemeal is the way to go because I think, you know, what have we talked about? I think most people, I'm yet to really meet anybody in Libya that thinks that sending 96% of the state's resources through a square kilometre makes a lot of sense. Um, clearly there needs to be a degree of decentralization, but it's not just decentralization for the sake of decentralization. For example, I think there could be quite easily another chapter be added to the state's expenditure for municipal spending, as long as there was then a legal basis and an accountability mechanism for that local 
municipality to then report upon what it has spent. What can, what can the internationals do to create criteria that can be applied? What, what should they prioritize in these efforts? So we were talking earlier about the fee on foreign exchange. Well, that's demonstrably helped a lot of people because of the reduction in the gap between the official and the unofficial rate. But it's also created an unaccountable 25 billion dinar pot of money with limited governance. Why couldn't there have been some prov better provisions over how that money was spent? Clearly, transparency, understanding where the money's going should be a priority. And those things can be done now. You don't need an end to the conflict for the Libyan state to report more than the top lines of its four or five chapters of spending. But then when it comes to the political settlement, I think, you know, that point about decentralization, you know, looking at the welfare, the welfare distributions there, how can it be made more effective? And I think that there are a lot of things that can be done here. And there are some brilliant Libyan minds that have some fantastic ideas of how to introduce this. And so I think there's buy-in from the internationals that this is a major part of the problem. And I think that that's, I think that's, a, that's a step forward. And so I think when it does come back to the point where people are talking, these issues are going to be put on the table. There are very smart people who are looking at means of implementing these ideas. But I think something that has, is a challenge and you know, is certainly not for me to say, um, there needs to be some kind of Libyan vision for how the future state will function. And that also applies, of course, to its economic system. At the moment, that's not there. So you can appoint fantastic technocrats to come up with solutions, but I think this should also be part of the discussion among Libyans. How, how do they want it to work? Because there are clearly a number of different options, but the system as it currently stands, as you note, is geared towards a dictator. And I think if we've learned one thing in recent years is that the ability of one individual to take over and dominate this system, um, it's not what it once was, as I think um, somebody's finding out in has found out in recent months. Well, there are, there are individuals controlling the system very well in the West at the moment. Um, okay, well, I feel like we have some kind of uh, road map that we could look at, but this has been very, very interesting for me. Is there a question you would have liked me to ask? I think actually it's been um, really... Uh, you know, it's, it's been nice to be able to talk things through in detail. Often you get, someone says, I'll respond in 20 seconds or something, and I never know, I never know what to say. But I think that these issues, it's not about saying everybody's greedy and everybody's just in it for economic um, benefits. It's just understanding that this is a key system of how people operate, how they're able to fund things, regardless of what you think, the ability to mobilize resources it is important. You need to understand how the system has entrenched some of these behaviors. So it's not necessarily just about what people think. It's about the opportunities that are before them. And if your opportunities to cope are often quite negative, for example, if um, in your area you're not able to access much from the state, agriculture's gone down, and there's an increase in smuggling, and smuggling is the best coping mechanism, then just cutting off that smuggling without providing any kind of alternative isn't going to help. And I think this is where, you know, we need to understand it's, it's certainly need to be enforcement mechanisms, but understanding how these structures operate and how they might be shifted to improve or to incentivize better behaviors. I think that's, that's the kind of the, the big exam question.
part of Libya Matters is to try and bring nuance to the narrative on Libya. So we, we're, we're, we keep trying the segment, <laughs> it doesn't always work, called debunking the narrative. And so I will throw a statement at you that we hear a lot, and I'd like you to refute it as quickly as, and, as possible. So the first one we've got here is, well, we know that human trafficking is the real business in Libya, and that's what's fueling the conflict. I think that's quite easy to debunk in certain areas of the country, uh, smuggling is a lucrative uh, source of income. But really, it, it has connected to competition over smuggling routes. But the value of human smuggling, I think, from my work, guessed it, it was around $1 billion uh, in 2016. I mean, there have been letters of credit that have been worth more than that in, in a few goes. So the, the conflict is about control of central resources, those in areas, particularly in, in the south and northwest where smuggling is prominent, do engage in it. But really, it's, uh, it's something that, that people in the west are very focused on because it's a, a key policy initiative. But in the Libyan context, it is by far from being the most significant uh, opportunity on the economic front. Okay, and another one for you. It's really rather simple. The armed groups are stealing. If you remove the armed groups, then you have a healthy economy. False, because the structure in the system is zero sum, and whoever controls the system controls all of the resources. The armed groups are often working with actors that were there previously and doing things which other people have been doing previously. So it's just that they're learning the ropes. And only way to actually remove these types of predatory practices and the extent of corruption is to produce a system which better distributes Libya's wealth and incentivizes the right types of behaviors over corrupt and predatory ones. And I have one more. Libya is a rich country. Why are we even talking about any of this? It, it certainly is. Um, and in fact, I think if you were to talk in the UK and pr deny people wages for a year or so, then you would see chaos. Um, but at the same time, again, I'll just go back to the structures that Libya's wealth is being distributed and many people are suffering, but just about enough wealth continues to be distributed. The problem is, is that you've got an increasing cornering of many markets and you've got very few people diverting most of the wealth. And this is something which is just increasing and can't be sustained. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. This will help us get discovered and to keep growing. If you'd like to suggest any guests or topics for future episodes, please let us know on our Facebook page, Libya Matters, or tweet us at Libya Matters Pod. This episode was hosted by me, Ilham Saudi. It was produced by Tara Kilmiri. The people who put it all together are Linda Patumi, Elise Fletcher, Ines Maximiano, Mahmoud Sawan, and me, Ilham Saudi. Libya Matters is made possible by our partnership with International Media Support, IMS. 